You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcaster Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. In this podcast, I cover common problems and injuries young athletes may face and ways to keep your kids healthy and as safe as possible while participating in sports. Leading experts in the field will join me to give you the best advice and what is the state of the art in thinking about issues young athletes may face. If you have a stake in the health of young athletes, whether as a parent or coach or even a young athlete yourself, this is the podcast for you. Join me as I bring you the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Your young teenage soccer star runs up the field and makes a quick change in direction. You see their knee buckle and they crumple to the ground in pain. They can't put any weight on it. You get to them and they think something popped in their knee. Within a few hours, the knee starts to swell. The next morning, it's still pretty swollen and still they can't put weight on it. So you take them into your local sports medicine specialist. The doctor examines the knee and then gets some x-rays of the knee. Everything on the x-ray looked fine, but they're concerned about their exam. When they tested the ACL or the anterior cruciate ligament, the doctor thinks the exam wasn't normal and they're fairly certain the ACL is torn. After that, you and your soccer star don't hear much else of what the doctor has to say as you've heard of this injury before and you know that this means your child is likely going to be out of sports for a while. ACL injuries in kids have been described by some as an epidemic. Surgeons are operating on more young athletes with this injury than ever before. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk about what to expect when your young athlete has been diagnosed with an ACL tear, what happens in surgery, what to expect following surgery, what rehabilitation is like, and expectations for getting back to sports. I am Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and you are listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Today on the podcast, I have three guests. Dr. Jennifer Beck is an assistant professor in the Department of Orthopedics at the Orthopedic Institute for Children, part of the University of California in Los Angeles. She completed her orthopedic residency at Loyola University in Chicago, followed by her pediatric orthopedic surgery fellowship at UCLA, and then a sports medicine fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. She is active in multiple orthopedic organizations and has published numerous articles on pediatric sports medicine topics. Paul Jenkins is a physical therapist and has been with St. Louis Children's Hospital since 1993, currently serving as the coordinator for its Young Athlete Center. He received his master's in physical therapy from Washington University School of Medicine. In addition to treating young athletes for several decades, he has been active in coaching multiple youth sports, including through the Special Olympics. He also teaches with the Washington University School of Medicine program in physical therapy. Summer Runnestead is a certified athletic trainer with over 15 years of experience in prevention and care of athletic injuries. She currently manages the sports medicine program at the Orthopedic Institute for Children in Los Angeles and assists with research, patient education, and return to sports assessments. She is also a certified performance enhancement and corrective exercise specialist. Welcome to all of you to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. So let's start by talking about what exactly the ACL is and why it's important when it gets injured. So the ACL, just to start out with what those letters mean, is it's the anterior cruciate ligament. So I think the first most important thing to understand is what a ligament is. And a ligament is something that connects two bones together. That's different than what a tendon is. People get the two confused, where a tendon is something that connects muscle to bone. So this is a ligament that sits deep inside your knee that connects your femur, your thigh bone, to your tibia or your shin bone. 
it's really important because it helps you control your ability to rotate. And so the most common things people notice when they have these injuries or how the injury even occurred is during a planting and twisting or pivoting type motion. It's not as common on the straightforward type activities, and we don't see as much stress on the ACL going straight forward, but it's the side-to-side -side movements of sports such as soccer, basketball, tennis, football, where that ACL gets injured and where it's also the most important. So when I give parents news from their exam that I'm pretty confident that their ACL is torn, usually the question is, and they're holding out hope, that it's, it's partially torn, it's not completely torn. You know, in my experience, that's a pretty rare phenomenon. You know, I probably can recall three patients that once we got further studies that it turned out to be just be partially torn rather than completely torn. So what's your each of your experiences with partial tears? I, I would agree that my experience is that partial tears are very rare. And partial tears really are something that's only going to be diagnosed on advanced imaging because our physical exam maneuvers sometimes aren't quite sensitive enough to even pick those up. And so if a healthcare practitioner is getting a con concerned exam, the likelihood of a partial tear just off an exam alone is very low. Uh, we only have a few studies that even talk about partial tears and the chance that those patients will have a positive outcome. And it's really only in very young patients that there's any chance of healing. Most of those do go on to having a complete tear or complete failure and needing surgery later. So we talked a little bit about the MRI. You know, often after the physical exam, the next step is getting an MRI scheduled and parents often expect that. You know, I tell the parents, I feel pretty confident that we're going to be talking about that their ACL is torn based on their clinical exam. So do you even feel that the MRI is necessary after an ACL tear? For me as a surgeon, it's very important because it really helps me guide their immediate treatment and their treatment timing is that the secondary thing I'm looking for is, is, to, is any sort of other damage, such as a meniscus tear or a large cartilage or covering of the bone injury. And so that's something that can push my hand to need to operate on a shorter timeline versus having a little bit more luxury of the patient scheduling the surgery uh, at their own time and within their own time frame. And so for me, that information not only confirms what my diagnosis is that I have um, just from my physical exam, but also tells me how soon I need to get this patient into the operating room. So what kind of things would we expect to see on an MRI? You know, we, we talk about the ACL tear, but typically when we get an MRI on someone who's torn their ACL, there's, there's a host of other things that we could see potentially on there. So can you give us an example of some of those things? When the MRI comes back, there's often a lot of different findings. It's not just something that says ACL tear. We have to realize that in order for the ACL to tear is that there actually is a time at which the two bones, the femur and the tibia, hit together. And that causes some bruising, some edema, and even some tiny little microscopic injuries to the bone. And those, because MRIs are so sensitive, are something that are picked up very readily and can be very nerve-wracking for parents to read in a report. There's also a fracture or a break in the bone that can happen that is very small that's seen on the very outside part of the tibia or the shin bone that can also be noticed. But that is a type of fracture. It's called a Sagan fracture. That's not something that typically warrants surgery. It's not something that causes us to limit their weight bearing or slow their rehab. It's just another kind of secondary sign that, that confirms that the ACL is torn. And then additionally, we mentioned some of the meniscus tears, and sometimes there are other cartilage injuries that we can see that will determine timing or any sort of other potential treatment that's needed, as long as any other ligament tears that maybe the patient was too difficult to examine because they just injured themselves, and we'd want to make sure there isn't any other ligament damage, such as their MCL or their LCL. 
So once we've confirmed that the ACL is torn, generally we're not going to suggest surgery right away for that patient for lots of reasons. One, one is that oftentimes they're very swollen, they're very stiff, and we know that oftentimes they don't have very good outcomes after that. It makes them more troubles after their surgery. So you know, we'll usually send someone to physical therapy or to their athletic trainer to start working on some, some motion and things like that. So can each of you talk a little bit about that? I'd say just to start out, the the first thing is making sure that there isn't that major meniscus tear, that's something that's actually a meniscus tear that's out of place. Thankfully, those are more rare, and that's something that we would get to a little bit sooner on the surgery side, but I completely agree with you is that I want to see what's called a quiet knee. I want them to basically be back to boring life. Their pain's nearly resolved, their swelling's nearly resolved, they're walking around the house. And that's where I, I refer them either to their athletic trainer, someone in their school, if they have access to that, or a physical therapist so that they can uh, work with them in order to get both of those things. And what kind of things would you, Paul and Summer, work on a little bit for with these kids to help get their get them ready for surgery, so to speak? I think the most important thing is to really focus on restoring range of motion to the best of your ability. Also try to keep the quads firing up as much as possible. The stronger they are going into the surgery, the stronger they'll be going out. Yeah, and I get a lot of questions from families where they're wondering why are we working on strength if they're going to lose strength after the surgery and trying to explain to them that if we start at a higher level, that which they lose will get them back to function at a much faster timeline. One of the other things I think that we really have an advantage with if we can get to them to do some rehab prior to that is to set better goals and expectations so they have an idea of what to expect after surgery because we spend a little bit more time with the family. And the other thing is really to educate them on preventing further injury while they're trying to resume their normal life with a somewhat unstable knee. And I would agree is just having that relationship before the surgery, knowing who is going to be there with them, helping them with their rehab. And I'm very open with my patients that They'll see me the day of the surgery and then they'll see me at longer periods, you know, two weeks, six weeks, three months, you know, much longer time periods. But they're going to be seeing their their physical therapist and their athletic trainer two, three times a week. And so that's a relationship that really in the end, I think, is the most important thing for their outcome is having someone that they feel comfortable with. They have a good relationship with. And I think establishing that before the surgery is an important thing. Great. So we're going to take a quick break and we will come back and talk more about what happens next with surgery. The one question each podcaster should be asking themselves is, why am I still editing my own podcast? Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast here. I've podcasted and edited for over a decade, and I know what an hour and a half podcast turns into when you get in front of the editing stack. Let me tell you, it's not an hour and a half. It's closer to probably double that time. Are you ready to hand off the time you're wasting editing your own podcast? Looking for a cost-effective solution that doesn't break the bank but gives you super experienced quality podcasting back to you in a short period of time? Be sure to check out The Editor Core. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Everyone loves a good podcast. If you like what you're hearing at the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, join me with my other program, the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, where I talk to other healthcare professionals dealing with young athletes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hole message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? 
Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it all out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. And we're back with our guests today talking about what to expect from an ACL tear in your young athlete. And so we're at the point where your child is, their knees functioning back to normal as far as they're not having any swelling, their motion's back to normal, and now it's the time for surgery. So there is several different ways that an ACL that's torn can be dealt with. And we call this a reconstruction. It's not a repair because the repair means that we're sewing the ends together. They tried that in the past. It wasn't very successful. There, there is some research that's been done now to try and simulate that in a different way now, but still probably not the preferred method for most of the surgeons out there. But can we talk a little bit about ways that a surgeon is going to potentially reconstruct an ACL to make a new one for a patient? Yeah. So there's, um, I think when I'm having the conversation with the patient, I kind of remind them of that exact thing is that we have to make a brand new ligament. I can't just sew the ends back together because we have numerous studies that have showed us that there's almost a 50% failure rate if we try and do that. So reconstruction is our main option right now, but that means that I have to make a new ligament out of something. I kind of start out by describing there's two different categories. First of all, is there's one category that's called an allograft. And a lot of people will do some internet searching and will see these words such as cadaver or allograft. That's a type of tissue with someone who has passed on and donated their tissue. And that's something that is commonly used throughout orthopedic surgery. I tell people about it just so that they're aware. But in the end, we have study after study who tells us in our young patients, our young athletes, those reconstructions just don't fare as well. And the failure rate is almost 25 or 30% in some of the studies that we read. So I tell them about it, but I would never recommend it because that's just not good enough for my patients. Then we have the category of what's called autograft, which is taking tissue from that same knee and making a new ligament out of that. There's really three main options these days. One that's very popular is the hamstring tendons. It's done through a small incision and it takes the cords in the back of the knee to make a new ligament. There's good things and bad things with each of the grafts and people would say the good thing about this graft is it's a very small incision. The pain after surgery is relatively low. I think the biggest concern us as surgeons that we have is what's the size of that graft and is that going to make a big enough graft for us so that we know that there's going to be a safe return to sport. The next most common one is what's called bone patella tendon bone, which is where a small part of the kneecap and then the tendon below the kneecap and a small part of the shin bone or the tibia is taken. It's a really nice graft. It's been used for a long period of time. Some of the good things about it is it's a great size and patients tend to do very well. The two downsides to that graft is it is a very large scar and there can be some problems with knee pain both right after surgery and in the long term with kneeling and bending that can be associated with that graft. There's a newer graft. It's called the quad tendon graft, which just uses uh, the quad tendon, which is on top of the kneecap. Some people use a little bit of the kneecap as well as in that graft. And that's um, over the last five years really been growing in popularity. And we're hoping with further research that that may solve some of the problems of the other two grafts of being able to use a small incision and get a large size graft with hopefully reduction in pain afterwards. I think in the end, it needs to be a discussion with you and your surgeon that there's not one that's necessarily perfect for everyone. And you need to understand what the risks and benefits of all of the different graft options are. So let's, let's switch up the scenario a little bit. So we're talking about our typical teenage high school athlete who tears their ACL. 
which we see far too commonly. So, so say we have a middle school athlete or maybe even that upper end of grade school athlete who tears their ACL and that changes things a little bit. And I don't think parents always understand the significance of that, but we do have concerns about what's called the growth plate. That's the area of the bone where new bone is coming from. And, and in order to do the traditional ACL surgery that's done in someone who is already completed their growth, there's no concerns about uh, injuring potentially that growth area. So can you talk a little bit about what's different for the kid who has an ACL tear who still is growing and maybe like has a lot of growth and then maybe who's getting very close to being done growing? We kind of break them up into categories. Unfortunately, it is becoming increased and increasing chances that these younger patients are going to have these injuries. And so I kind of think about it in a couple of different categories is that if you have more than two years of growth remaining, so that's meaning a girl under the age of about 11 or so, a boy under the age of about 13, that means that those growth plates at the end of the femur and the top of the tibia are very open and that if there was any injury to those, it could result in that limb either being shortened or it could have a deformity, an angular deformity, if, if that affects the growth plate. And so surgically, we have to be very careful about what we do around those growth plates. And those very young patients, the eight, nine, 10 year olds, there's really two main options. One that was popularized out in Boston where they use the, the iliotibial band, which is a piece of tissue on the outside part of the knee. And they actually don't do anything with the bone. They make a new ligament by wrapping it around the two bones. And that's shown great success over the last decades. There's a little bit newer technique where they actually use also a piece of tissue like a hamstrings or the quadriceps tendon, and they just make very tiny holes in the bones and they stay completely away from the growth plates, but there are, are tiny holes in the bones. That also has been popularized more recently. And again, I think that's a conversation for your surgeon and you and understanding um, both of them and also what your surgeon's best train in. In the middle category, someone who has a little bit of growth left, that's where um, there's a couple different factors that kind of go into play. We recommend that they're using a soft tissue graft, so they're using the hamstrings or the quadriceps tendon, that there's not any bone involved, and that there's just some specific surgical techniques that need to be uh, monitored and cared for in that middle group. So we've got to surgery now. Surgery's happened, and no surprises from surgery. So Let's talk about expectations that you'll give the kids and the parents after they've had their surgery for that first week or two. So what are, what are common things that you recommend to families to look out for, expectations for pain, because obviously this is a significant surgery. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what happens when we start doing therapy and when should we typically start therapy. I told, tell all of my families that this is a very active recovery. This is not a teenager sitting on their, their bed or on the sofa, texting, watching their movies. This is something that right away the next day, I want them up and moving. I want those quads getting moving. I want them weight bearing. I'm wanting them bending their knee. All of those things very quickly. That's important, first of all, for pain control, because the faster they start getting up and moving and bending, their, the, the lower their pain scores will be. But that's also a very important thing in their recovery that their physical therapists and athletic trainers will work with them. And so I'm always telling my patients right away the next day after surgery, get up and move, start bending your knee. When it comes to pain control, another really important thing is icing. And there's a lot of different ways to ice anything from simple ice bags and frozen peas and corn to very fancy, expensive machines. There's no study that shows any one is better than the other. I just want you to find something that you're able to do and make sure and protect your skin because you don't want any sort of burns or wounds caused from the icing around your skin. There usually is a pain medication that patients are given after the surgery to go home with, and that can vary based on your, your surgeon's preference. But a lot of patients are able to take Tylenol, Motrin, maybe a little bit stronger pain medicine for a day or two, 
But usually by day three or four after their surgery, they're coming off all their pain medicine. And usually by day five or six, they're off even any over-the-counter pain medications. So the first couple days are the most difficult, but it gets better pretty quickly. I think the big thing is, is the mobilization and getting in to see their physical therapist as soon as they can, really within you know a few days after the surgery, are very helpful for their pain as well as their general recovery. So Paul, what are you going to expect? You see this kid come in, they've just had their ACL torn. What are you going to do with them? Well, I mean, first things we're going to do is really work on motion. And that's, uh, I think that that's why I liked what you were saying there is that the kids that are afraid to move are sometimes those that we have the long, hardest time getting them back because they're, they're really afraid of the pain. So they don't want to move the knee when almost all the other kids that we see, when they start moving it, they actually feel better. And that's something you really just got to kind of get them to trust you and convince them of that. But movement is going to really help with that. It, it's moving the, both the knee joint, but also moving the knee cap around with a lot of these surgeries because that tends to get stiff. And that will affect both their movement and their quad function because the, quad, the kneecap has to move as part of the normal quad functioning to try to get that full strength back and to get that end range extension where they get to go all the way straight. That's where I think a lot of the big challenges come on in the early phases. So we really want to get them to work on those things. And that's the really the beginning phase of rehab is really just focusing on that motion and that getting the quad to start to activate. I, I don't even call it strengthening at the beginning because it's really just getting it to start functioning again. Strength will come later. And that's where we have a lot of time to really get that back because there's going to be a lot of time necessary for the healing to fully take place before there's going to be much of the demands placed on it. I think one quick question I'd have for you that a lot of patients ask me is, these crutches, what are things that I can do at home to be safe? Because I know that I get phone calls, oh my gosh, my child just fell down the stairs. They were worried using their crutches. Can you give a couple of tips that I can share with my patients as well as with all of your families? So I think one of the things that we see most commonly when patients are having trouble with the crutches is getting them fit correctly to them. And sometimes that fit varies from when they're fit in the hospital where they're wearing those little slipper socks that they get home and they put shoes on and they, there's a difference in terms of their functional height. And that inch or so changes how straight and upright they stand. If they're standing up straight, they're going to have much better balance and they're going to have much better coordinated movement. Stairs are always tricky and I always encourage them to take one step at a time. The other thing is going downstairs. A lot of times people will tend to lean forward. What I really want them to do is to lean back a little bit and that way they balance their weight with their injured limb in front and their back behind. And then they just do a one-legged squat until they're down on that next step and just repeat that each step they go down instead of leaning forward where you have to fight gravity. It's just much more challenging. And if you do go wrong, you're gonna land on your face instead of on the other part, which is a little bit easier to land on. In summer, you, you know, you'll see, obviously see these kids uh, coming back to school and uh, after their surgery, and they'll probably maybe come into the training room and, and uh, for the kids in high school. And so what kind of things do you talk to them about when you see them in that first couple of weeks afterwards? I think the most important part is just really, I mean, you know the athlete best, you know their personality, and so you know how much you can push them. I think that's one of the pros of being an athletic trainer at the school who sees them on a regular basis. So really pushing them hard. And also I think it's really important to communicate with both the physical therapist and the surgeon so you're all on the same page with the rehab protocol and you know, you're know you following it verbatim and communicating any um, roadblocks that you might come across and making sure you just kind of all stay on the same page and help them progress as best as you can. 
And so really the biggest part of recovery is, is the time to heal and the physical therapy part of this. The surgeon, that's, that's the easy part for you. It's not just a few weeks of therapy. This is months of therapy of getting someone back to normal afterwards. And Paul, can you kind of go through a little bit the goals of physical therapy as we go through this course of an ACL recovery from their surgery? You know, what kind of things would you expect that you'll progress these kids through and kind of the importance of them also emphasizing their home rehabilitation too? So I think home rehabilitation is critical. No matter how much insurance you have, you're only going to see your physical therapist so many times per week. And even if you're lucky enough to have a great athletic trainer at the school, you're only going to be able to have so much time with them because they're going to have all the other athletes they're taken care of. So that, that combination is never going to be enough to get them to that optimal recovery that they can get if they're doing their part in addition to that. So that, I think, is one of the greatest things they can do to really get to the highest level of recovery as quickly as possible is to really work out at home, which many of the athletes are used to that. So I think that's not something that they really find as being unique. It's just the different sorts of exercise that we really want them to focus on at this point. I think the first thing is, as far as goals, is to get them off crutches and walking normally. So we want to minimize any signs of a limp and get just that, that piece going correctly. Then from there, it's pretty quickly that they can start moving into higher level functional things. So I know they realize that it's that long time before they're fully back into sports, but some sorts of sports-like activities happen pretty quickly. And that really helps to get the psychological part of them back into it. Okay, I'm jogging again, at least with my therapist or my athletic trainer, so they can start to feel that, okay, they're starting to feel like themselves. So that, that usually in three to four months, I want them to be doing some jogging, hopping, and things of that nature. Then it's a matter of their steadily working on normalizing the strength um, with that motion being should be back by then, but it making sure that it really is more of a fluid motion and it feels as close to normal as possible for them. And then also working on those other aspects of it, which is the endurance, the cardiovascular training that needs to go along to get them back to that ability and the perception or, or the balance in those quick reactions, being able to be aware because now they have a newly reconstructed ligament that their brain is not necessarily used to all that sensory input and it doesn't feel necessarily the same way it used to. So they have to learn kind of a new pattern to really make sure that they're moving in the right way and get all that right then they're really ready to start moving back into all their higher level functional things, the skills related to the sports and things of that nature. I think it's really important, you know, as they progress to the functional portion of their rehabilitation that we stress the importance of the cardiovascular. I think when I see them in the return to sport testing component, that a lot of the times they're doing all of their functional, they're hopping, they're doing multi-directional changing, but they're not quite ready to go back to a soccer field. And you have to remind them, okay, now you're not doing physical therapy. Now you're progressing to being an athlete again. How many miles does a soccer player run in a soccer game or a basketball player? So really stressing that importance moving forward. I think that's a trouble that we all struggle with, with, with sort of any injury we see or any surgery that you may do is, you know, athletes are going to get to the point where they're feeling pretty good, even though their injury isn't fully healed or not fully functional back to their activities. So how do each of you address that with the athletes that you see of pulling in the reins and making sure that they're not overextending their bounds? Because, you know, obviously as a surgeon, you're protective of the ligament you just reconstructed. You know, the rest of you, you, you know, the physical therapist doesn't want to have that person, you know, extending their therapy any longer than they need to. The athletic trainer wants that person back on the field as quickly as possible, but also making sure they're safe doing that. And that's, you know, they get the pressure from the coach. So kind of each of you touch on that a little bit about how you, how you keep these kids and pulling the reins. 
So I think that's part of my even preoperative discussion is that I know, you know, there's a variable time frame. It's not just a date in the sky that they get to return to sport is that they need to meet a bunch of milestones. And, and I'm very upfront in telling them there's going to be some times you're not going to like me because you're going to feel good and I'm not going to let you do things. And I'm always happy to explain to you why. But the biggest thing is that the biology inside the knee, that ligament takes three to six months just to undergo some of its biological processing. And in that time, it shouldn't be seeing any sort of stress. And that's when you're working on all these other types of things. And I think it's also really important to understand what you know the patient's goals are. What are they trying to get back to? It may not just be soccer, but it also may be dance or skateboarding or other types of activities that potentially you could incorporate some of those as well if they can't actually get back on the soccer field. I think it's always very difficult when you have some athletes that progress very easily through their rehab and you're seeing them at six weeks and they just want to get out there and start running. They feel great. Their motion's great. They have minimal quad atrophy. And it's hard. Those patients really lose motivation and, and the psychological game is really what you have to work on at that point. And I always just remind them, what's the end goal? Is, is My job as their surgeon is to get them back to a healthy, active lifestyle. And if we work together, I want this to be the only time they have to have the surgery and not come back for this knee or heaven forbid the other knee. I think one of the important parts as physical therapists and athletic trainers when we hit that point is to start to get really creative with our rehabilitation and try to make it as fun for the patient as possible to where each session is kind of interesting, yet they're still getting all of the strengthening and functional movement that they need moving forward. I think the other piece is the education and testing so that you can sit there and they, they think they're fine, but then when you really do a detailed comparison to the other side and give them some objective numbers, and explain to them what that really means and show them that, okay, wow, you're really only 60% of the quad strength that you had on the other leg. It feels great when you're not challenging it, but if you attempted to do those things with that much of a deficit, there's a real chance that you could get hurt and step back in your rehab. And that's, I think, the piece. I don't want to use that as a scare tactic, but I think that's the part that really, oh, wow, to lose ground and make it take longer is something that none of them really want. So once they understand why that that's a real risk, hopefully you can get that but they are teenagers, so sometimes it's still not necessarily always going to be a good answer. Yeah, I do agree. That objective data of being able to say, here's your strength on one leg versus the other. Here's what your balance was on one leg versus the other. They know. They put that effort in, and, and I think that is very um, elucidating to them of really the differences side to side that they have. And so I think it's hard to also argue with those numbers, but then you know where to build and you can give them hope saying, here, look at where you're doing great. We've got a couple of things we need to work on. And so you just have to make sure and give them that positive feedback as well and that they're getting close and here's what we're going to do to make this even better. So the biggest question I think that most athletes have is when can I get back to play? When are you going to clear me back to sports? Maybe the second question is how big is the scar going to be? But so what what do you tell that athlete? I mean, typically we talk about you know, the general out there, six months is what you expect. You know, we're not expecting the Adrian Petersons out there. Uh, those are the superhumans who have, you know, rehab going three times a day by specialists and all that, and abnormal athletes as far as kind of what we expect. But, you know, I've, I've even heard some people suggest that we should be not letting kids go back to their sports until it's two years after their surgery. So what, what would you normally suggest to somebody? So I think the days of saying a six-month recovery in a pediatric population are long behind us because we've really found that for every month we can delay their return, even up to a year, their chances of re-tearing dramatically decrease. And we think that's because we're addressing some of those other issues, those functional movements. 
It used to be that we said, oh, your knee bends, it straightens, it looks pretty good on the exam table. But now that we have this much more intricate return to sport testing, we have a little bit more of this specific numbers of what it is. The biggest thing that I know I look for is I'm looking for their injured leg to be better than 90% of what the other leg, what their uninjured leg is. So they they don't have to be perfect, but it needs to be pretty close. Um, and that's where I really rely on our physical therapist and our athletic trainer who, who are doing those tests to give me that quality data. And they also a lot of times can then give them some of that directed rehab. But for, for me, it's, it's very rarely before nine months that I'm returning to our patients. It's more typically about 12 months. And I think that's an important thing to remember is, you know, again, when we're trying to get back to activity, it's we, we want to let that person succeed when they go back. And it's also having the opportunity to maybe screen them for some things that, that maybe led them to tear their ACL to begin with. So, you know, we want to prevent this injury from ever happening again or happening to the other knee. So so there are some injury prevention programs out there. So so can maybe Paul and Summer, you talk each about that a little bit? I know we have a injury prevention program, we call it the Dynamic Injury Prevention Program, and we give it to our patients around the six-month mark or as they're ready to start progressing back to their sport. So we utilize it for that, but we also are really trying to get out in the community and help prevent it from happening in the first place. So with this athlete, if they could even bring it back to their soccer team or basketball team and get the whole team on board, and it's important to get you know coaches on board, organizations, so we can do more of this injury prevention so we can uh, keep it from happening in the future or just help prevent as many ACL injuries as possible. The stronger they are, the better. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. The, the, the Working with the individual athlete who's had an ACL injury, uh, doing the injury prevention elements into their rehab in the latter phases is critical because you want to make sure that both their limbs are in the best shape possible for returning to sports, but also educating them and their teams and their coaches. We do a lot of that, trying to reach out to the community because some of these programs have been shown to have as much as a 50% reduction in terms of the number of ACL injuries and other serious injuries as well that by adding just a little bit of time into their warmups and doing it in a very specific way should be able to show some real reduction in injuries for the athletes as well as a performance enhancing effect. So that's the other piece that it's not like you're just giving up your time. It actually does actually improve their speed and agility, which should show outcomes on the field as well. And, you know, you and I, Paul, have some experience that with um, using the FIFA 11 program with some of the uh, clubs that we work with, but you know, I think the struggle we've had is is the buy-in by coaches. You know, these programs are out there. They've been shown to be very effective, yet we don't see every single soccer club or basketball club or, or volleyball club doing these programs. And it dumbfounds me sometimes when we can reduce an injury that could lead to a surgery that could lead to lifetime issues with that person down the road that that clubs aren't and schools aren't using these programs more regularly. And you guys, any of you have any thoughts about that as far as the stumbling blocks. I mean, I think from my standpoint, it's probably just, it's, it's not as sexy and exciting as spending more time dribbling a basketball or dribbling a ball around and kicking into the goal as doing these programs are. And I think that's probably that, you know, we only have so much time, but when you can invest in something that prevents a pretty significant injury, I think it's worth it. I think the biggest thing is just educating them on the injury rates to begin with and just stressing that this, we're talking about 15 to 20 minutes out of your practice to help prevent losing one of your players during the season. I think that's really important for us to stress. I think we're also in this culture right now of this sport specialization, overtraining, 
where people need to go and they want to spend an hour and a half shooting free throws over and over trying to perfect their free throw when they could be working on some other programs and doing some different types of translational skills. And we, you know, in the orthopedic sports medicine literature, have study after study that showed translational skills are very important for developing athletes. And so I know that we're all trying to maximize how much we can get out of one practice, but I think we all in the youth sports community need to take a little step back and say, what are we really doing to these kids? Is we're trying to force them to improve at these dramatic rates and get them better and faster and stronger. But we know that the rise in ACL incidence is only going up and up no matter how much we've been trying to reduce that as uh, sports medicine providers. And so I think we all as a community need to take a step back and remember what's important is that it's not winning a championship that year. It's that 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 young athlete has fun and that they're playing a sport, they're active, they're engaged for their entire life because it's not just their social support, it's not winning trophies, it's about their overall cardiovascular health, reduction in diabetes, cardiovascular disease. That in the end is really what our goal is. And if these kids get injured and get burnt out when they're 10, 11, 12, what are they gonna be like at 30, 40, and 50? And that's really a hard thing to tell the kids, but as parents and coaches and sports medicine uh, practitioners, we really need to be the advocates for not only their youth, but for their adulthood. All good points. So when we talk about common questions that parents may ask us, one of the common questions I know that comes up is, is, is my knee gonna be, the reconstructed knee, is it stronger? Than what it was before I tore my ACL to begin with. It's not going to be stronger, but it can, through therapy, get back to the way hopefully it was in your functional status beforehand. And that's what we do with all of our return to sport tests. But it's not something that we ever do that say that you're going to be stronger. But the idea is if you learn some of these other preventative programs, you get your hip abductors that were weak before addressed that maybe you'll become a, a better athlete because you maybe have a better technique, you pay attention to things. But unfortunately, it's not stronger, but the idea is that we get you back to at least where you were. I would agree. I think that the athlete themselves may be in stronger and may, may be in a better state to return to playing because of all the other changes that they've made as an indirect result of having had the injury. So one other question is bracing. Do you think that bracing is helpful after a surgery or preventatively? You know, I think we probably see bracing the most in our football players and the linemen who want to wear their braces. It drives me crazy the number that come in asking for them. But, you know, for, say, the soccer player, the basketball player, volleyball player, do you send them back in a brace? I can tell you what I tell all of my parents and all of my kids is that there's a lot of things to argue about with your child. And that I want my parents and coaches advocating for the prevention programs and the rehab not did you put your brace on because I think kids see it as oh I'm going to put this piece of metal on my knee and now I'm invincible oh so what that I didn't do my program because I had this piece of metal on my knee and now I'm Superman and we definitely have studies that show those, those braces are not as effective and even have questionable efficacy at all and so um, I offer it to them I tell them some of the pros and cons and and if there is a one or two percent chance of reducing it but I really want my parents and coaches focusing on the prevention programs and the rehab, not did you put your brace on, did you pack your brace? Yeah, I think one of the real advantages and helping them to understand that one of the advantages, if there is an advantage to the brace, is that, that awareness it gives them of that limb and hopefully gives them cueing to move in their better directions. Because the amount of force it takes to tear that ligament is far more than it's going to take to pop the Velcro that's holding it in place. So I, I think that in the event that there's a bad injury, there's going to be a bad injury whether they have a brace on or not. Great. Well, I'd like to thank all of my guests today for their expertise in talking about an injury that is unfortunately way too common in youth athletes. 
We'd love for you to listen to our other episodes of this podcast, and you can check out our podcast library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please review our podcast and spread the word about us. You can find our full episode library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, and you've been listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast.